everyone, and welcome to the 19th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Grossman, CEO of The Atlas Society. Today, we are joined by Christina Sandifer. Check out her awesome art <laughs> on her wall that is not staged. Um, before I even get into introducing Christina, wanted to remind all of you guys by now, you know the drill. Um, you can ask her questions, Zoom attendees, just type them on into that little Q&A icon. We've all become like Zoom black belts. Um, and if you're joining us on Facebook, then just type your comments into the comment section. If you keep them short, it'll be easier for me to evaluate them. Uh, so we'll try to get to as many questions as we can. Um, Christina is Executive Vice President at the Goldwater Institute. She is co-drafter of the Right to Try initiative, which is now federal law. It protects terminally ill patients' rights to try safe investigational treatments uh, that are not yet FDA approved. She is also a huge defender of property rights, big theme for us here at the Atlas Society. She has won many, many victories for property rights in Arizona and has worked nationally on efforts to require government to pay owners when their property rights have been infringed upon. Boy, Christina, we've got a lot that, that government needs to pay back uh, in terms of how much they've infringed upon property rights over the past few months. Uh, Christina is the co-author of Cornerstone to Liberty, Private Property Rights in 21st Century America. We are going to get that. We are going to make it a subject of one of our upcoming um, book clubs. So Christina, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Um, so for the uninitiated, uh, tell us a little bit more about Right to Try, how did it begin, what are its roots, and how did this personally become something that interested you as an area of specialization? Yeah, well, and, and your last question is a good one because, you know, I've been in the freedom movement for quite some time. Um, but I am not a healthcare policy expert. I'm an attorney. Um, I practice primarily, as you've said, in property rights. Um, but what, what really struck me about healthcare back during when the Obamacare debates were going on, and of course, then when the law was passed, is just how important it is for us to be able to preserve our right to make decisions about our own health, about our own medical autonomy. And it really struck me that, you know, we talk about property rights and your right to self-ownership before you can own and use anything else. Um, well, you really don't own yourself if you can't make decisions about your own healthcare, especially life or death decisions. So that was really where my interest started. Um, but, you know, about six years ago, it's, it's amazing just how quickly all of this happened. Um, I really started looking into the process of how medicine is approved in the United States. And really to understand why we needed right to try, you need to understand how the US drug approval system works. Because in our country, you cannot take any medicine whatsoever unless Big Brother tells you you can. Um, and people say, well, what about Tylenol? I can just walk into the store and buy Tylenol. And of course, that's only because the government allows you. Uh, the Federal Food and Drug Administration has a monopoly um, over deciding what drugs, what treatments are appropriate to be sold on the market to patients. And that goes from Tylenol all the way up to life-saving treatments. And 
So it, we have a system essentially that has changed quite a bit over the years, but as it stands, it can take decades for life-saving treatments to make their way to market decades. And when you think about the way technology moves and the way entrepreneurs act, and we have things, we have cell phones. I mean, everyone's got their cell phone right next to them. I mean, your, your cell phone, you change it every couple of years, right? You can't even keep up with the technology. You can only imagine the innovations in medical treatments, and yet people who are given years, months, maybe even weeks to live are told they also have to wait for this lengthy, decades-long federal bureaucratic red tape process before they're able to try medicine. And so that just struck me and my colleagues at the Goldwater Institute as fundamentally unjust. It's, it's unconstitutional in our opinion because the Supreme Court has long protected the right to try to save uh, your life or to make, to make medical decisions for yourself. Um, but it's just immoral for the government to tell you that you can't, if you are dying, especially for people who are dying, that you don't have the right to try to save your life. So we wrote Right to Try. And you know, Right to Try is, is what you said it is. It is it is a declaration that in a country that is supposed to be a free country, that dying patients have the right to try to save their lives with medicines that have passed basic FDA safety testing. So we're not talking about medicines that are unsafe, which frankly you should have a right, as long as you understand the risks to try that as well. But this is about, these are patients who are dying. We know the treatment won't kill them. We don't know if it'll work because it's very hard to tell whether a treatment will work for every single person in every single situation. But we know that patients don't have the time to wait. And if your doctor thinks that treatment's right for you, then you should just be able to try it, even if you know the ultimate decision is that it won't work. Um, it seems like such a no-brainer, but the truth is that for decades and decades, the law was the exact opposite. The law was that no, you have to beg to get into a clinical trial, which is how we test whether drugs will um, be approved for market. Only 3% of the sickest patients get into clinical trials. Basically, you have to benefit the government by participating in the science experiment, or otherwise you don't get access to the treatment. Or you have to beg for special permission by filling out hundreds of hours of paperwork and getting your doctor to agree to go through the bureaucracy that that entails. And, you know, again, what we learned is that there were real people and real patients who were just dying waiting for this permission. And these are people who know that these drugs might not be that silver bullet. They might not be the treatment that saves their lives, but they've exhausted all of their options. And they just want that right to try. And that's why we called it right to try. They want that right to choose for themselves whether they want to try a treatment that might not help them, but might actually save their lives. Yeah, it's really revolutionary um, what you have done, what you've actually accomplished with this uh, legislation. Um, and I think it's also just genius from a almost a political standpoint as well. I've seen you um, in Arizona uh, at a keynote that you have given the examples, you know, the people that you have come to know personally who um, are terminally ill that have been helped, um, if not, you know, in terms of having their lives saved, but, but just to have, to be able to, to live uh, at whatever stage of your life with the dignity of having some agency over, you know, of, of, of what's happening to you. Um, I just think it's, it's just extraordinary. Uh, now, of course, since the last time we saw each other, <laughs> We've had the pandemic, we've had the lockdowns, you know, everything has, has changed. Um, but both of those have unique 
implications for the uh, the two areas of your specialty um, regulations around medicine and people's right to dispose of their property as they see fit. Uh, has the past six months, ha has it provided some unique challenges or even um, some opportunities for the work that you're doing? Yeah, you know, I think the answer is both. Uh, I mean, in, in, in terms of healthcare, one of the lessons that we're learning, and it, frankly, it's a lesson we're learning too late, but is that this bureaucratic drug approval process that I was talking about, you know, it has hampered our ability to be fully prepared for a pandemic. Um, and that, that has just become very, very clear. There have been numerous rules from the CDC to the FDA and every other you know, federal alphabet agency that deals with healthcare that have kept people and entrepreneurs from being able to step up and address this and save lives. Um, I mean, you know, everyone's been paying attention to the news. You've heard the countless examples, but we learned about how there were private testing kits that could have gone out to individuals, literally even to their homes so that they didn't have to risk their health if they were high risk to go out uh, that the FDA kept from, um, you know, from people being able to use. There was actually a diagnostic testing program that was going on in Seattle that was promoted by Bill Gates and the FDA shut that down and they didn't shut it down because the diagnostics weren't working or because there was some kind of safety concern. Uh, it was because, you know, he, they didn't go and ask Big Brother May I before um, they gave the results of those tests to patients. So it was the preventing patients from actually getting their own healthcare information and on and on and on. One of the, one of the craziest ones early in the pandemic to me was that and this, this, again, is sort of the juxtaposition of how amazing the market can step up to deal with these things and then how the bureaucrats just get in the way. Um, when a lot of bars and restaurants were shut down uh, early on in the pandemic, a lot of distillers that would normally be uh, making beer and selling them at their bars said, well, we're going to convert our machines and we're going to start making hand sanitizer so that people can keep themselves clean and safe when they have to go out. And I mean, I think this is just phenomenal market response. And what did the FDA do? It's like no good deed uh, goes unpunished. They said, well, if you're gonna do that, uh, you have to make sure to put bitterance in this um, hand sanitizer because you know, it might kind of taste like beer and then people, geez, they might not read the label that says hand sanitizer and they might drink it and you know, we can't trust them to do that. So you have to make it taste really bad. Um, and you also have to meet a, a ethanol level because there's a certain amount of ethanol in, in hand sanitizer that's sky high, more than we require for typical hand sanitizer to be on the market. And what you're basically doing is making it, you know, cost ineffective for these people to, to step up and help during the pandemic. So I do think that, you know, lessons have been learned. Um, it's, it's interesting that people have less trust, I think of the CDC and some of the other government agencies that sort of botched this response, uh, but the FDA still does remain a popular government agency um, because I think people have seen too that the FDA has, has learned, well, we need to step in and do something here and we're clearly not responding the right way. So we have seen the FDA break down some of the typical barriers that would exist in regulations, um, allowing vaccine trials to be fast-tracked uh, for COVID-19. We've seen states especially, and here's where I really think the opportunity is, states have just gone crazy with getting rid of regulations left and right. Um, we've seen uh, states get rid of things called certificate of need laws. And these are laws that exist in over half of the states that say, before I can practice in the medical profession, 
uh, either say as a doctor or a nurse or before I can open up a hospital or a practice, I have to get permission from the government by proving that there's a need for my practice. And then my competitors that are already exist, already practicing, they can object by saying, nah, we got it. We've got it covered. There's actually not a need, um, which is crazy because what competitor wouldn't object to more competition, right? Who wouldn't take advantage of that crony system? Uh, and how do you prove a need before you go out in the market and try your business? So things like that, um, laws that actually require you in the healthcare profession to get a license every single time you practice in a different state, even though you've been practicing your profession competently for years. Um, laws that say that people who are trained, like pharmacists, they get training to administer vaccines and you know test for strep, for example, and they're told by law that no, 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 only a doctor or a nurse can do that. Again, no reason, uh, health or safety-wise, other than just keeping competition out. So all of these requirements and many, many more basically just went out the door uh, during the pandemic. So many states, so many governors, we worked on a lot of this. You know, governors issued executive orders, some were legislative just to say, hey, during the pandemic, we're gonna suspend all of these so people can get the healthcare that they need. And what is the lesson we learned from that? Because so many times government tells us that these things are needed to protect us. Well, if during a pandemic, when we need protection, uh, these laws aren't working and they're not helpful, what that tells us is, well, they probably weren't needed ever to begin with. And so I'm, I, although it's frustrating to see, you know, just how ill-prepared we were um, to deal with these types of things because of the regulations we had, I do have hope that people are learning these lessons, they're understanding um, you know, how when we break down these barriers to innovation and we just let people serve patients and serve the public uh, in ways that make sense, uh, that, you know, that, that can really help respond to a crisis and that if it is useful in an emergency, then it's useful in times of peace as well. Yeah, I think that there has been a teachable moment, shall we say, for the past uh, six months. And we tried to capture this a little bit in um, My Name is Coronavirus, uh, a Draw My Life that we released early on in which we talked about the CDC and how if it was just supposed to do one thing, right, it, it was not able to do it because the choice of doing one thing is the choice to not do another thing. And rather than doing the one thing that they should have been doing, they were going after vaping, they were talking about you know gun control, all of this stuff. and they were completely unprepared to do the one thing that they should have done and they already seem pretty lame the way they've been handling it uh, recently. So um, I want to remind everybody who's watching, we have this extraordinary opportunity with Christina Sandifer. So type in your questions, type them into Zoom, type them onto Facebook, and I definitely want to get to your questions because I bet they're even uh, smarter than mine. Um, but I couldn't go one moment further, Christina. Have to ask you about the art, and I have to ask you about the tattoo. Yes, yes, yes. Well. You know, I, my entire office, which I won't make people seasick by turning the camera around, but is all Art Deco themed. I have been an admirer of Ayn Rand since I was very young. Uh, and, you know, her philosophy and the philosophy of objectivism is really the reason that I'm here today doing the job that I'm doing. And so um, this, of course, is the oath um, from Atlas Shrugged. And it's, it's something that I live by every single day. Uh, fall short of it sometimes, but, but always 
look at it uh, every day that I enter my office. So as, as you said, this is not staged. This is actually hanging in my in the corner of my office here at the Goldwater Institute. And I look at it every day and um, remind myself to live by that, um, which is why I also got the tattoo that I have. I have a tattoo of a dollar sign on my foot. And of course, it's the correct dollar sign from Atlas Shrugged that has the two lines instead of just the one, just like your beautiful pin. And, uh, you know, I am, I wanted one for a long time because I thought for me and especially, gosh, who would have even thought it would get harder and harder like it has today. But I thought, you know, I want to wear my fundamental beliefs on my sleeve or on my foot, if you will. I want to, I want to always be a spokesperson for, you know, values of individualism and capitalism and freedom. And so I said, I'm just going to get a tattoo uh, that that shows that I believe in free market capitalism. So that way I will I will never be able to hide it and I will always be encouraged to promote it. And so I was visiting my family in Hawaii and I you know I had a little bit of downtime and said, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go get this tattoo. And so I go into this tattoo shop, just found the artist that was available, told her what I wanted and kind of explained how it was important that it looked a certain way. And she said, oh, does it symbolize something? Because I have the same dollar sign. And she showed me on her arm and she had a whole sleeve of different tattoos, but she had the same one. And, uh, and I said, oh, that's, that's fine. That's exactly what I want. And the tattoo artist said, well, you know, there's this book Atlas Shrugged. And I thought, and come to find out, she was an objectivist. Who would have thought I would walk into a tattoo shop and the tattoo artist in Hawaii would be an objectivist. So it's even more special now. Oh, well, I don't know if you'd still have her contact information, but we, that would be a lot of fun. We should do something with um, objectivist tattoos and Ayn Rand tattoos, because I'm sure there's quite a bit out there. So um, from, all, from all over the world. Uh, okay, so speaking of all over the world, um, when you look around comparing to the United States uh, to what other nations are doing in terms of regulations, and speeding treatments and vaccines, uh, you know, how do we compare and what can we do to make sure that we are in a competitive place uh, when it comes to the race for these kinds of cures and vaccines? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. One that I think is especially important today because um, we do see some uh, desire, some advocacy to sort of turn inward, right? In light of the pandemic and, oh gosh, some people have drawn the, um, you know, have drawn the conclusion that, well, we're too reliant on countries like China, we're too reliant on foreign countries, and we need to bring everything back home. And I think that the answer is exactly the opposite. We should have more reliance on more people in, in countries that, you know, can develop, say, vaccines or treatments. Um, you know, the COVID vaccine, there's no guarantee that it's going to come from the United States. And what we need to do is be open and able to trade freely and to access those things freely so that American patients and American doctors can get access in the same way that uh, patients and doctors would in other countries. Uh, the truth is, you know, we talk a lot about how burdensome the FDA is, and it, and it truly is. Um, but the US mostly still leads the world in treatment innovation, uh, but it is changing. You see a lot of developed nations, uh, Japan is a great example, that has really broken down a lot of unnecessary red tape because they know it just doesn't make sense for um, the way that treat the treatments of the future look. And so in Japan, you know, I was talking about this lengthy multi-decades process to get access to uh, a life-saving treatment here in the United States. Uh, in the United States, our process says, okay, you first have to prove that it's safe. 
And, um, you know, I think most people, uh, if they're going to accept some government regulation, they can, they can say, all right, well, we at least want to know the drug's not, you know, the treatment's not going to kill us. It's not going to be very dangerous. But then the bulk of that time in the U.S. is then spent proving that the drug is effective. Uh, and, you know, what does that, what does that mean, right? I mean, is a drug, I mean, every drug is going to be different for every individual in every individual circumstance. There is no way that you could ever prove that a drug is 100% effective and there's no drug out there that is. In fact, there's no drug out there that is completely safe. I mean, even Tylenol kills hundreds of people a year, um, acetaminophen, right? So it's, it's going to be some bureaucratic line drawing. And of course, without proper knowledge and incentives um, about what risks tolerance uh, individuals have, the FDA just draws that line where they think it makes sense. And that's why drug companies have to test for years and years and years and years to prove the level of efficacy that, that meets the bureaucratic standard. In Japan, they have sped the process along. So they've said for certain treatments, once you show that the treatment is safe and effective enough in certain groups, you can start giving people access to that treatment. It's sort of like a provisional approve, uh, approval. They'll keep testing it. And if later on we find, gosh, there's some big safety concern, or gosh, this really just doesn't work for a whole segment of the population, you know, then they might pull back approval or they might add additional labeling and things like that. But in the meantime, why should people who are dying or really sick be deprived access to that medication if we know it's on the right track? So the US has fallen behind um, in this way, right to try, is a great step in the right direction because it does give individual patients who are terminal the ability to bypass some of that. Um, but the United States really is not on track to compete with systems like Japan. Um, and so what we have, what we're sort of advocating for here in the US is, well, one, we need to reform our system, but two, um, this idea of international reciprocity, right? Something might move along a lot faster in Japan and get approved quicker, um, or a company might decide to go through the regulatory process first in France or in the United Kingdom. And the sad reality is that once they put all the money and time into doing that testing and get approval in those countries, they have to, if they want approval in the US, they have to do the same thing in the US all over again, even though the numbers and the data and the science don't change from country to country. So our argument is, look, you know, countries that have similar or better standards than ours, if a drug is approved in Japan or approved in the United Kingdom, approved in France, whatever, it should be a, presumed to be approved in the United States unless our drug regulators have a really, really good reason to justify why it shouldn't be. The presumption should be that doctors and patients um, should be able to work with those treatments. And that would really stop a lot of what we see. You know, you mentioned the patients that I've met. One, one who really touched me was uh, a young man who was 10 years old and diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a rare form of bone cancer. Um, and it was, you know, it could have been a death sentence for him. There was a treatment out there that was highly effective that his doctor thought would work for him, but it wasn't approved yet in the US, still working its way through the process. It was approved in the UK. Uh, his family had means, they had, um, they were able to pick up and move. They had to move to Europe for an entire year for him to get these, this treatment. Pull him out of school. His dad had to commute from Europe to Arizona <laughs> for work, um, but he got the treatment. He got better. Uh, he's alive and well today. Uh, he actually interned at the Goldwater Institute to help us with Right to Try. But you know what he said is, I'm lucky because my parents had the money and the ability to be able to do that. 
but it's crazy to think that, you know, that treatment, which has been approved in other countries for years, is still not approved here in the United States. And there's no reason for that. So again, breaking down these artificial barriers when it comes to science, when it comes to standards, it, 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 you know, there's no reason why those things should have to stop at, at our border. Um, and we should be able to take, bring those treatments into the United States and take them in the United States if they're approved somewhere like Europe, like Japan. Yeah, that is amazing. So that it, it seems is, is possibly the next frontier, right? To, to, to get this reciprocity going. And I think it would be um, spectacular in terms of saving lives uh, and uh, also uh, expanding cures, right? Because um, then people can devote, these companies can devote more resources, right, to hiring the best minds, to developing the best cures, rather than to all of the, uh, the reg regulatory rigmarole. I mean, people love to demonize big pharma, but like who other than big pharma, you know, can afford to possibly go through these kinds of processes. So we are limiting ourselves as Americans in terms of the kinds of innovation that we could be bringing to bear um, by these, these excess uh, innovations. All right, so we are gonna get to some of these questions. Uh, Roy, hey Roy, Roy Miller is here and uh, he's asking, kind of got a little bit to that, what people or documents do you look to for moral guidance? Yeah, well, I personally, like I said, I'm a great admirer of Ayn Rand's. Um, I think her system of morality is the right one. Uh, it's the one that I, I look to when I think about not only how I should live my life, but how government um, should act. And the truth of the matter is, you know, we see a lot of these regulatory agencies, we're talking a lot about healthcare. So like, let's look at the FDA, you know, to the extent that we think an FDA should exist, it should be more like the FDA of the past that said, well, let's make sure patients have all the information they need to make the decisions with their doctors. And instead, no, today we have an FDA that says, we don't trust you to make a decision. You know, the, the debates that were going on around right to try when we were working on it, we had these bioethicists that claimed that they were representing the right morality. And they said, no, no, we can't trust desperate dying patients to make decisions about treatments. They're too desperate. They're going to make bad decisions. Um, we need a neutral arbiter like the government to come in and tell them whether they should have access or not. And so again, when you look at it, when that's your philosophy of morality, that an individual's, you know, uh, values and individual's risk, risk benefit tolerance and individual's control over their own body and their own well-being, uh, when those things are irrelevant or when those things are subsumed to what some sort of, you know, government bureaucrat thinks is best for the collective, uh, it's just, it's a, it's, to me, that is the very defini definition of immorality. And so, um, you know, again, I think, I think Rand's works guide a lot of it. Um, I think, you know, the foundation of our country, I mean, our, our Declaration of Independence is a manifestation of that, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit. It is the ability to choose. It is not a guarantee that something will work. No one can guarantee that. No government could guarantee that. But the right to be able to pursue the life that you want to live, I mean, that is what makes life worth living. That is a guiding philosophy for me and a guiding document for me because that is what makes people human that is, you know, the ability to not just survive, but to thrive. And we can't do that if we don't have self-agency and if 
we aren't allowed to make decisions for ourselves. Yeah, it's, that's a great point. And I think the other thing is when government acts in a way that is communicating that they don't trust individuals, it is actually degrading trust in society because if the leading institution is telling citizens that they can't be trusted, then you know people are also getting the message, well, how can I trust somebody else? Like, how can, how can we trust each other? And trust is essential to, uh, to any kind of collaboration and a functioning economy. No, you're so right about that. And you know, it's amazing because we hear a lot today the, the mostly false notion that, oh, things are so dangerous today and we're so unsafe today, um, which is just not true. I mean, by almost any standard, we are, we are safer today, however you want to define that, than we ever have been. And a big part of that, of course, is because we're able to trust each other and we're able to trust each other uh, in a big way because of markets. Of course, trust helps markets function, but it's also markets that helps us. One of the great examples of that to me is uh, ride sharing, right? Uber, Lyft. If you think back to, what, 10 years ago, I mean, could you even fathom standing on a street corner in, in you know downtown Manhattan and getting in a stranger's car, somebody that you've never seen before, somebody you know, who doesn't have a have any connection to you, uh, just getting in there and telling them, hey, you know, take take me up to Central Park. I mean, where am I going to end up? I don't know, especially if I don't know the area, right? Uh, and yet today we don't even think twice about it. Um, and 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 it is it's incredibly safe to use Uber and and Lyft. And the reason why is because of the market. Um, and because Uber and Lyft found a way around these crazy regulations, and you know, some would arguably say that it's safer to use services like that than traditional taxi services, which are more regulated. And um, and so, it, yeah, it's incredibly important. And government didn't do that. Government didn't instill that trust. Like you say, if anything, its regulations have sort of degraded that trust. But um, but it's it's markets, it's freedom, it's our ability to find solutions. Um, yeah, I, I that resonates with me about. Uber, because uh, when I took this job running the Atlas Society, and I was like, oh, salary is $5? Okay, $5. How <laughs> am I going to pay the bills? Um, then I said, well, I'm going to do Airbnb. And uh, I, I, people think I'm completely insane, you know, that like I would let strangers stay in my in my guest room but um but you know there's there's a, a trust that is engendered by people using the platform and knowing that there are consequences right when there are no consequences um then then uh, people are less likely to act in in ways that are in their long-term self-interest and it's also you know in terms of trust why i think communication is important in that's a value that we we uh, emphasize you know, at the Atlas Society in our particular branch of open objectivism, which is that, you know, talk to each other. I'm not going to get like infected by talking to somebody, you know, who is a conservative or a liberal or has a different view of objectivism. I just like, can't we just talk? I mean, it's really, it's not, it, it, it's not that difficult, folks. I don't know why it's that difficult. All right. But there, this one, this one is difficult. This question is a toughie. Uh, so if you don't want it, you can we could go on to another. Uh, Richard Horton asks, hey, Christina, what are your thoughts about individual rights and genetic engineering? Yeah. yeah, you know, it is, it's a really, really interesting one. Um, and there are a lot of 
I think a lot of libertarians, objectivists, conservatives, whatever, you know, um, that, that are kind of on both sides of this issue. Um, I tend to be, I think for the reasons that we were just discussing, this, um, this dovetails kind of nicely, I tend to be more trusting um, of technologies like that. Um, and I think that uh, obviously consent plays, plays a big role, um, just like it does in, in any other area. Um, but I think that, you know, genetic testing, genetic engineering um, can be a tool for good. It can be um, you know, it can be a really, really interesting way to be able to get rid of diseases, to be able to, I mean, we talk about it in the terms of food, right? When people are very um, averse to GMO, we want labels on things that say, oh, our food is not GMO, um, which to me is just crazy in a, in a world where, you know, <laughs> if we know one thing, we know that we don't have unlimited resources, right? Scarcity exists. How can we help more people eat? Well, we can we look for ways to better produce food. Um, so why wouldn't we want to genetically engineer food to be able to get safe, healthy, you know, food to more people? Um, so I think you know it's obviously a big can of worms. There's a lot of implications there for uh, human genetic experiments. Um, obviously, um, tools and technology can be used for bad as well as good. But um, but I think the answer to all of these things, just, just like, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts of today and any other technological uh, innovation um, is that we should be open to it. Uh, and that we should give people the freedom um, to be able to try these things. Um, but again, there, there are areas where, you know, privacy concerns and things like that come into play. Um, and, you know, it does become difficult to grapple with. So um, just like anything else, there's going to be, there's going to be limits um, where my exercise of, uh, you know, my individual rights come, starts to affect yours, then I no longer have a right. I'm coercing you. And so drawing those lines can sometimes be tricky in a modern world, but I think it's wrong to just completely close ourselves off to a technological innovation just because we can't foresee exactly how that would work out or just because, you know, our founding fathers when they wrote the constitution didn't foresee those types of things. Okay, uh, this is a another, I think, kind of challenging question and you, you may not have an opinion on it. I don't have much of an opinion on it. Um, the question is from Vicki. She asks, what are your thoughts on the politicization of hydrochloroquine as a COVID treatment? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, it's it's I've thought about it a lot because because of right to try and, and because mm. of the work that we do in healthcare. Um, I will say, um, my thought is that it's a shame that it's been politicized. I am not making any statement about you know chloroquine or hydrochloroquine and whether it is a an effective treatment um, for COVID nineteen. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Um, there is definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence out there from doctors who have used it to treat that say that it's been helpful in certain circumstances. Um, I can, I cannot verify that. What I can say though is chloroquine is a great example of, <laughs> of exactly why we should avoid um, politicizing med the practice of medicine, right? We, this is a treatment that has been around for a very long time. It's, it's used to treat multiple um, illnesses, one of them is rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and it's been used safely for RA for years. 
And so, but all of a sudden, uh, you know, it proposes a potential treatment um, for COVID-19 and the president comes out and starts talking about it. Now, in one way, you know, you can say, well, gosh, he, he didn't just talk about it as a potential treatment. You know, he was basically endorsing it. And of course, no president should be doing that. But of course, it's also toxic once, the, once President Trump, you know, says he likes something, then 50% of Americans think it's horrible. And so all of a sudden, then we have states stepping up uh, and telling doctors that they can't treat people who have COVID with chloroquine, uh, even though chloroquine is an approved drug. It's been approved for decades. Um, it is, you know, again, no drug is perfect or safe in every situation, but it's a relatively safe drug. Um, and doctors have the legal authority to use a treatment uh, in a ways that we call off-label. So if a drug is approved for to treat RA, a doctor in his, using his or her medical judgment can use that treatment to treat COVID or something else. Um, so, but all of a sudden, you know, states are stepping up and governors are issuing executive orders telling doctors that they can't use chloroquine uh, for COVID. And it's just, you know, it's crazy because politicians shouldn't be practicing medicine uh, unless they are also doctors and then they should be doing that with their patients. <laughs> and, and, and so the, I think the lesson we can learn from chloroquine is just is exactly what happens when something like this gets politicized. What we should do, chloroquine's approved, right? And it can be used off label. We should study it. We should allow doctors. I mean, there are doctors, look, red and blue don't really matter in an emergency situation in a hospital, right? And there are, were doctors all over this country that thought that this could be an effective treatment for certain patients. Now, they're not always going to be right, um, but these are people who are trained medical professionals who are on both sides of the political aisle or completely apolitical. Using this in a scientific fashion, neither President Trump, nor you know the governor of uh, Nevada, nor any other politician should be telling them one way or another, um, should be second guessing their medical judgment in that way. I completely agree. So everybody, we've got another 20 minutes or so. So we still have time for a few of your questions. Uh, so go ahead and hit us on up. Um, Erasmo Martinez uh, asks, what would be the role of government in a libertarian society? Well, I think I ran a pretty good answer to that. <laughs> we have about 24 hours to discuss. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's a, you know, it's a big question and there's a, um, a lot of good answers to that question. You know, the short of it is that in a libertarian society, a government would exist to, you know, for protection and primarily the protection of people's rights, right? Now, again, that can mean a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. Um, I think our constitution is imperfect, but I think it does a pretty decent job of outlining the very limited, and this is again, the way it's written, not the way it's been expanded and inter interpreted, but you know, the very limited functions um, of government. But you know, libertarians and objectivists believe that there is a role for government, but you know, the role is to secure rights. And this is of course what our Declaration of Independence says. And this is why it's so important um, to read our constitution and to think about government in the United States in light of the Declaration of Independence. Because the Declaration says, look, you know, the purpose of government is to protect people's rights. It doesn't pre-exist people's rights. It doesn't, it doesn't float out there in some state of nature. It, we, we get together and form government and give it very limited power so that our rights can be protected. 
Um, and so, you know, a government, so again, if we look in terms of the FDA, like I said, you know, an, an FDA that, um, you know, that makes sure, like we hear a lot about the snake oil salesman, right? This, this comes because people think, you were mentioning big pharma, people think, gosh, if you have a lot of money, if you're a company with a lot of money, you probably got that in some evil way, right? And you're, you're greedy, you, you don't need all that money. And of course, you know, when people follow the market, um, the way that you get money in a free market is I, I can't, you know, steal it from you. I have to, because government's there to stop that. And I don't have a right to do that. I have to convince you to give me my money, to give me your money and to convince you to do that. I have to give you something that you want or need. And that's how companies get money. Um, and so, you know, the FDA should, I mean, there are already so many standards in place in a market system to make sure that that's how drug companies work, that's how medical treatment works. Um, so, you know, you would you would see a government role in healthcare to be more akin to like, you know, punishing people who lie, right? So the snake oil salesman um, can't operate because he's lying. He's telling you that, you know, this product here is gonna cure everything and, and it really cures nothing. And so, the, you know, the government comes in and punishes that person for lying. Um, and, you know, the, the, but at the end of the day, <laughs> if people are trading um, truthful information about products and services, and you have doctors who are medical professionals that know how to interpret that information and work with patients, that's where the government's role stops. The government shouldn't be telling people, you know, whether or not they want to take certain risks, because that's really what Right to Try and a lot of these healthcare initiatives are about, is that the government thinks that you are not equipped to be able to make decisions about your own healthcare when those decisions aren't scientific and they're not medical decisions. They're about your risk tolerance. I may be dying and think, look, this is a long shot, but I'm dying. So I want to try that treatment in case it can help me. And I want to know I had the right to make that choice. Other people might say, you know what? I'm sick. I've been through a lot. Uh, you know, I've been through a lot of medical treatments. I'm tired. I'm just done. I'm done fighting. Who's to say which one is right and which one is wrong? That is not the government's role. And that is not the government's role in a libertarian society. The government has no role in that decision making. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And Erasmo, um, going back to Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, and we meme this relentlessly. She said the government has three functions. One is police to protect individuals against criminals. Two is national defense to protect the country against foreign invasion. And three is the courts to adjudicate differences and to punish criminals. So that is really what uh, should be the role of the, of the government in a free market um, society. And, you know, uh, Christina, what you were saying really uh, resonated with me too, um, because I spent a good chunk of my career in the private se sector. I was a senior vice president at Dole Food Company. I, I started their Nutrition Institute. And this was a time when uh, the, the FDA was getting increasingly aggressive uh, about um, what, what we could put on food you know, packaging. And uh, I, I remember because the owner of uh, Dole Food Company, you know, he, I think he's about 100 now, but he was just passionate about health and nutrition. And that's what he wanted to do with his property, which was his company, was he wanted to um, sell fruits and vegetables, but also he wanted to communicate messages about nutrition, let people know what kinds of you know, nutrients were in different foods, why those nutrients were important. And we got just like 
incredible interference from the FDA. And I was like, ah, uh, shouldn't you guys be, don't you have another job to do? And it was just an example, sort of like what you saw with the CDC, where there was this mission creep, but it was also more than that. You know, it was just that there was this incredible mistrust of anybody in private business. Yeah. So they just thought like, okay, well, whether it's, you know, you're selling snake oil here or you're selling fruits and vegetables there, if you're selling, you know, you must be somehow doing something wrong. So true. Well, and here's what's so crazy about that. You know, if you're selling, I mean, really even the sale, the snake oil salesman, even without government, he's eventually going to be found out. Right. And right. Then keep selling snake oil and people keep taking it and it doesn't work. Eventually people are going to get angry. And that is especially true in, in today's society where, oh my gosh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't buy anything on Amazon or anywhere else without reading reviews, right? Everything you want to know about that product, any anything people want to say about it, you can find online. You've got consumer reports, you've got Yelp, you know, for restaurants. I mean, we self-regulate all the time. And if that person, if that snake oil salesman, you know, sells a product that doesn't work, he's going to go out of business. The, the thing that's hilarious though, is that the FDA, if they fail and they fail all the time, I mean, they've the government agencies have failed during COVID, um, and, you know, government, I mean, the FDA approves so many treatments that eventually they end up pulling back on because they say they don't work or because there's, you know, health concerns and the FDA fails to approve how many treatments um, that could have saved countless lives or, or takes 10, 15 years to approve something and how many people had to die in the interim. And you know what, those are failures. If business did that, I mean, it, they would go out of business, but when the FDA screws up, they get more money. It's like the opposite of a market, right? They, they go to the Congress and they say, well, you know, we just can't possibly, we can't act fast enough. We, you know, all these treatments are out there. We just don't have enough people at the FDA to help approve them. And uh, so we need, or we got it wrong. We need more scientists. We need more bureaucrats. We need whatever. And they get a bigger budget. They get rewarded for failing, which is exactly the opposite of what happens in the market. So true. I, I remember uh, early on, one of the first times I ever went on television, I was scared out of my mind. I really didn't have all the answers down and a question came out of nowhere. It was sort of like, well, there's been, you know, car, car accidents. So I think we need to have more government regulation uh, to make sure that these cars are safe and to make sure that unsafe cars aren't on the road. And I just like without being even that sophisticated, not that I am now, um, I just said, uh, I think the car makers probably have a very big incentive to have safe cars and put those, you know, um, procedures for quality control in place because one car with one malfunction, you know, no one's going to want to buy the car. So, oh. All right, so let's see, we got another interesting question. Um, Victor, Victor Snyder, this is interesting, a little off topic, but uh, I would love to know uh, your thought. Um, he wants to know, how would you react to an immoral law should a person obey it? Like, so I guess an example could be, like let's say there's a law, you can't take this kind of um, drug because it hasn't been approved, um, you know, yeah, yeah, no, depends on it or your life could depend on it. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question. It's one we sort of had to, to grapple with a little bit in the early days of Right to Try, um, to mm -hmm. use it as an example. So we actually started Right to Try at the state level. Um, and the reason for that 
was uh, primarily strategic because you know people have been trying to perform the FDA uh, from Washington DC for decades and they were getting nowhere because Washington DC is where good ideas go to die. So, um, you know, we started at the state level where you can get just a little bit closer to the people. And of course it was more of a grassroots movement. Um, now, <laughs> when right to try laws were passed, so say for example, Texas, that's an example. Texas passed the right to try act. Technically that conflicted with federal law because the FDA was still saying you can't have these treatments unless we tell you you can. Um, and our argument was both constitutional and moral. Um, on you know, the constitution side, we said, well, we actually don't think that federal law trumps state law here because we don't think the federal government has the power to tell dying patients that they can't take these treatments in the first place. So that was our legal argument. But on the moral side, we said, look, we have a, there was a doctor in Texas um, and he treated for uh, neuroendocrine cancer. Up until this new treatment came out and was going through the approval process, the best thing he could do is give people chemotherapy and people had awful side effects and you know most people who were diagnosed with this particular type of neuroendocrine cancer were told that they were going to be you know dead within months uh, but this new treatment was showing remarkable success people were living for years and um, there are still people alive today who got treatments from him under right to try you know five years ago um, but the federal government said it wasn't approved yet and you couldn't take it and he believed, and I agree with him, that you know that was that's immoral. Like that's the government basically giving those people a death sentence, um, and that is not only unconstitutional but it is morally wrong. So that doctor said, "I want to treat these patients," and we said, "You know, absolutely." Um, and and you know, actually, we we said we would represent him in court um, if he, you know, if the FDA were to come after him. And interestingly enough, they didn't because he was, he was not, I mean, he was protected by state law, but he was technically breaking federal law. Um, and we actually kind of expected me, I'm an attorney. So I was kind of rearing to have that, that not only legal fight in the court, but that fight over the morality um, or the immorality of the law in the court of public opinion. And we didn't, we didn't ever get there. And I think part of that is, even though the FDA is very jealous of its power, it does not like being undermined. And even though, you know, it, it had federal law on its side, uh, at least statutory law, um, I think the moral argument made a big difference because, you know, we heard behind the scenes a lot from uh, federal officials that really hated right to try. I mean, the FDA would even go into state legislatures and try to get these state legislators not to pass the law. But out in public, you know, they were very quiet about it. And because they, I mean, I think because it's just, how can you make the argument that dying patients shouldn't have that right, especially when these are treatments that are being given to people in clinical trials, right? Why? That's basically like the government saying it's moral for me to pick winners or losers. And that is what the government does, but you couldn't even get bureaucrats to say it. So I think there's something to be said um, for standing up to an immoral law uh, and ignoring it. I, I mean, juries do that with jury nullification. Um, and I And I think that Morality and constitutionality really overlap a lot too, because I think when you look at what the constitution actually says about our rights and actually says about government's powers, a lot of the things that we find to be immoral that government does are actually also unconstitutional. Yeah, well, uh, think back to the civil rights movement, think back to Rosa Parks, you know, that she uh, was not willing to um, obey an immoral law. So, you know, I, I think that there are times when um, actually refusing to submit is, is the right thing to do, but um, you have to be careful. I also want to applaud Christina for one of the correct uses of the word jealous 
That is like one of my pet peeves when people say that envy, you know, and jealousy are the same. They are not. Envy is, uh, well, Ayn Rand called it uh, hatred of the good for being good, but you can also think of it in common parlance as kind of um, a wanting what someone else has whereas jealousy is being fearful of losing what you have. And jealousy is not always you know, a bad thing. Sometimes it is good to want to keep what you have uh, and we're, in terms of government. I'm so glad, I mean, I applaud you for applauding the, the youth <laughs> because you know, it really is though, you know, we, we can joke about these things, but it's very serious. Uh, obviously Rand believed you know, very much in the power of using language correctly and that's why you know, she insisted on using the word selfish, and we hear it just misused and abused constantly today. But, but you know, whether you talk about selfishness or rational self-interest or however you want to say it, but I mean, but it's it's important for people to understand that words mean something, and we can't be lazy with language because if we're lazy with language, we lose the ability to to reason. Exactly, I think that is so important. Um, that's something that, that I have also written about because particularly now with all of these politically correct terms, if we, uh, if we control language, we limit language, then we are limiting our ability to even think about issues. I, I wrote about this in uh, an article I did called Vagrants in Our Driveway, a Teachable Moment. And one of the things that I talked about was how we just, we used to have a kind of rich, not always very polite language to describe people who were living, you know, on the streets. And now it's just consistently, we'd say homelessness, like that you don't have a home. And so then we tend to, because we use that word, we tend to think about things in terms of policy solutions or what is going on here uh, as a housing crisis when, you know, in fact, you might have different kinds of um, issues going on. So, uh, but, but this one is, is near and, and dear to my heart. Okay, we are running out of time. Uh, let's see, here's a quick one. Kind of random, Jeff Rimbold. Um, have you seen 1986 The Act movie? I have not, no. Have you? I have not either. Jeff, let us know what it is about. Uh, I'm um, okay, and then here's this, this one probably again might also take too long to answer in the remaining few minutes that um, we have, but we have a question from Mark Smith who wanted to know, is libertarian equated to emotional maturity? Is this any kind of recognized connection? Mark, have you been to Freedom Fest ever? I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a great response, yeah. Well, I'm not a, uh, you know, a sociologist or, or anything like that. I, I, I can't, I would not be able to point you to literature about these things, but, uh, but I will say this, look, I mean, again, kind of joking aside, um, there is a maturity in libertarianism or in embracing a philosophy like that, because, you know, it's a philosophy that respects another person and, you know, that person's decisions. And it's also, a, it's a philosophy that says that in order to get your respect or to get your money or to get your goods or, or, you know, to get you to join a group and associate with me, I have to earn it. Um, I can't use force um, and I, I have to use persuasion and I have to, I have to create things that will be useful to you and that you will accept 
so that we're able to work together. And so, um, you know, that, that to me, I mean, that is maturity, right? Children, I mean, even, gosh, even most children understand that to an extent, but, but immature people, children, you know, they're the ones that, um, you know, that want to use brute force to be able to take things from others or to be able to control their people's lives. And, you know, mature people, um, they, you know, they operate more like libertarians. Yeah, I think, um, and actually, Mark, you know, it, that would be a great question. Check our upcoming events calendar on Facebook and on the Atlas Society site. We have uh, one of my other favorite ladies uh, coming up as a guest, Dr. Helen Fisher. I don't know if she's fully made the transition to being um, a libertarian, but, uh, but she is a, a psychologist and she's done incredible research on different political points of view and the different kinds of um, personalities that line up with that. So, uh, so that, would be, that would be a good question for her. Uh, also, everybody, if you haven't gotten enough of the most fabulous state Arizona and Ayn Rand fans from Arizona. Um, I want you to come back next week as well. Uh, I have one of my uh, oldest friends joining us, Clint Bullock, uh, who I know is also a good friend of, of uh, Christina's. And uh, he is gonna share with us also his Ayn Rand um, origin story. So um, sorry. His tattoo. Don't forget, he has a Liberty tattoo as well with a great story. So don't forget. Oh, okay. I, you know, Christina, I think you might know him a little better than I do. <laughs> oh, it's been a while. It's been a while. I, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And I am definitely going to hit him up with that. Everybody, um, please check out Christina's amazing work. Please support her work, support uh, the Goldwater Institute. Um, if you like what we're doing at the Atlas Society. Remember, we did not take bailout money. So, you know, uh, any small donations for it, we really appreciate it. And thank you for making it possible for us to do these. They are like the total highlight of my week. Christina, this one was off the charts. I'm so grateful. And um, just thank you so much. Well, thank thank you, you so much for the work that you do. It's so important. And to you, it was just excellent conversation. Really enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks, Christina. Bye, everybody.